Hey, this is Robbie Shaw. This is Patrick Bosley. And I'm Sam Hampson. And this is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Hey, we're back in the studio for another episode we're calling Champagne on the Brain. Today's topic is very critical to the mission of this podcast, and what we're going to do here is find out more about what's happening to our bodies and brains while under the influence of alcohol. So this is the part of the conversation that I'm probably most excited about. This is what I geek out on. It's also what I have to think about most days. Um, so you rationalize your drinking? <laughs> <laughs> I think about drinking a lot. Is yeah. that a problem? <laughs> you know, and I think there's so much that goes into this of just weighing, do I drink, do I not drink? You know, there's a point in my life where I removed alcohol based on the fact that it was not compatible with kind of optimal performance and the things that I wanted in my life. And Patrick's laughing at me. And then there was a point where I decided to kind of invite it back in. And that had to come with a lot of energy of just weighing, do I drink tonight? Do I not drink tonight? What does that look like? What kind of preventative measures am I going to have to put in place? What hangover cure am I going to have to drink before I go to Mm. bed? Like all of the dumb stuff. And one of the things that I just wanted to kind of touch on was some of the the thought process that I go through when I'm really thinking about whether this is worth it and just being really honest with myself about the effects of alcohol itself. So for me personally, what those look like are, I don't know about you ladies in the room, but I'm real up on skincare right now. (laughs) One of the first thoughts that I have is like, how worth it is it to have this glass of wine or this fruity drink or whatever and know that like, usually get breakouts after <laughs> drinking, right? Like make that one of the cri- ACM criteria. For- do you wonder about your skincare impact? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, but that's a real thing, right? So I'm looking at all the different like health associated things and you guys, it's a toxin. Like it just is a neurotoxin. You're putting it in your body. You're putting it on your brain. And I think through these things, so I'm just sharing them, right? Skincare. What is this going to do to my skin? Is it really worth it? If I'm going to have a vodka cranberry, cranberry just got a lot of sugar. Is that worth the calories? Blah, 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 blah. There's a lot of weighing kind of what happens there. Yep. How early do I have to get up tomorrow? Am I going to be, and I'm talking about like one glass of wine, no more than that. I'm talking about like one drink, two drinks max ever. And I still am going through this process of weighing. I am going to be groggier tomorrow morning. I am going to have a headache when I wake up. And is that worth it? Risk reward. Risk reward. And just not skipping over that step, but being really honest about what I'm doing and not being like, maybe I won't. I will. I'm going to have a headache tomorrow morning. Yeah. So do I want that? Is it worth this? Whatever. How bad do I need the alcohol? (laughs) But I'm listening to you say all this stuff. None of this ever went through my head. Oh, I know. Like ever. Ever. And I'm trying. Wellness. What really made made me laugh. Wellness. what, What really made me laugh was the thought of what would have had to happen to get me to stop to stop drinking what would be the one thing that would have been the you know not worth the, it the game changer yeah, yeah it's like <laughs> a seizure i don't know like, worth yeah. it yeah. Worth i'll give it. up one of my kidneys yeah. to chop my hand my hand which one <laughs> how many beers do yeah, i get you though? which one but the other things i think about i think i'm just a person and i'm sure my fiance would agree i'm a person that needs a minimum of 8 hours of sleep 
Minimum. Minimum. Mm, beauty rest. And skincare. <laughs> skincare. Duh. Excuse me. Wellness. Wellness. The reality of what alcohol does is it interrupts and even prevents REM sleep. Yep. So I'm not getting those restful sleep cycles that I really need during those eight hours. So yes, it may turn my racing thoughts, anxiety brain off all the different tiles that I'm going to put in the new bathroom. It's going to shut that off and I'm going to be able to go to sleep faster, but I will not get the same quality sleep when I'm asleep for those eight hours. I will likely wake up way more times that night and even the sleep I do get is not as restful. So another piece that I put into the equation, how much do I care about my eight hours? The last piece was probably when I was a little bit younger and on different medications where this mattered, but the idea that I am someone who doesn't even like to take ibuprofen when I have a headache, but I'm willing to drink a glass of wine is freaking stupid. If I'm saying like, I don't, I want to be holistic health and I don't want to put ibuprofen in my body because anything that... If I have a headache, my body's trying to tell me I need something, so I need to drink water and take a nap. If I am the person that says those things, I am not a person who should also be putting a neurotoxin on top of my brain before I go to sleep. It's stupid. And it's flat-out incongruent to be like, I really believe in overall wellness, and I don't want to put these things in my body to include antidepressants or painkillers or all these things, and then also consume alcohol. Yeah. It's just incongruent. Like, just call it what it is. The other thing to consider with this is if you are on an antidepressant, if you are on a sleep medication, if you are on anti-anxiety or literally any other medication that is designed to do something as far as chemical or adrenal release in your body, you are likely canceling out or compounding the effects of that medication when you consume alcohol. And if I'm just trying to bring myself up to baseline, and I take an antidepressant to do that, and then I pour a depressant alcohol on top of it, I'm getting myself back down, canceling out the Zoloft, canceling out whatever else I'm taking to be able to address some of those issues. So most of the time they're not, you know, when you go to a doctor's office, when they're prescribing things to you, we're really not having super open conversations about the safety of alcohol use on top of these medications. Could be a heart medication, could be blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Even something as simple as blood pressure, it doesn't make sense to combine with alcohol. You're just completely canceling out the effects. And yes, it says it on the bottle. But that's it. That's it. Nobody's telling you. No one talks about it. Yeah. No one talks about it. And I'll definitely get into kind of in later episodes when we talk about women's issues, kind of the effect of menstrual cycle, birth control, all these different pieces that that really impacts. But When I'm going through the equation in my head, is it worth the calories, the breakouts? Is it worth my eight hours of sleep? And what impact does this have on medications or the effects of the medications that I'm supposed to be taking for said symptoms? Those are all places that I have to go when I'm being really honest with myself about what I'm doing, which is just chemically putting a neurotoxin on my brain. Some nights I choose to do it. But I at least have to be honest, and I at least have to really be willing to look at what that's doing and not be the person that's like, I'm not going to take ibuprofen. My body should be able to naturally regulate Mm. itself. I don't want to put that in my body. I shouldn't have to artificially consume something. Where's the pee now? Yeah, so I... We just lost half our viewers. It's so... But come on. Like, it's so dumb. And I do it, but it's dumb. 
Right. It doesn't make much sense. And, and you know, my mind goes to, because this is what I suffered from. I suffered from mental health stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and granted, I, I, my dependence on alcohol certainly evolved to a level of, of addiction. But pr- even prior to that, which actually led to the addiction. And, and so there's so, you know, and, and we hear this a lot with, with you know, medications and, and, and quick fixes when people are suffering from depressive thoughts and anxiety and, and sadness and, and stress levels and, and physical sicknesses, you know, that, that are brought on by, I mean, let's be honest, essentially not living right. Mm. You know, you're not living you know, kind of in a wellness standard. And obviously alcohol, is, if that is involved, it's a depressant. It's, you yeah. know, it, it does these things to your body after it gives you what, you what you're looking for out of it. And we don't really make the connection. I think we yeah. could make the connection. <laughs> yeah. I think we almost ignorantly avoid the connection because the reward of alcohol is so powerful and so effective that we are willing to deal with the crap that comes with it. And I mean, that, that was my problem. I mean, I got to, and then of course it evolved to a place where, you know, you could cut off a hand and I would, and that would be worth keeping the alcohol in my, in my life. I wrote something recently called the shift and it was just some thoughts I had, but it had to do with kind of the, the, the self-conscious and the devil and angel on your shoulder and how so often we, we succumb to the, the, proverbial devil on your shoulder and, and, and kind of follow your desires to feel good or comfortable or satisfied. And, and once it reaches a certain level, you become dependent on it. And then the angel on your shoulder starts peppering you with little panic attacks and little depressions and little <laughs> casual, casual, just little red flags saying, Hey, you know, your, your behavior is not matching your morals, yeah. pal. Yeah. You know, maybe take a look at this. But what happens is instead of fighting the devil on your shoulder, you start fighting the angel. Yeah. And the angel's telling you you're not living right. Yeah. And you start fighting that. Yeah. And so you start trying to do whatever it takes to not listen to the anxiety the, so depress- the messages it. that your body and mind are yeah. telling you. Mm-hmm. You're not. Li- you're trying to avoid that. It's. I call that the shift. And then you. Then you enter a place of, of kind of that perpetual cycle of of now my behaviors are creating yeah. more of what I'm trying to avoid and and on and on. What questions do you ask yourself when you start exploring? issues with alcohol because that would be more where the social and wellness piece fits in for me like are you actually putting this in a wellness box or have you reserved alcohol for your social life and so when you're looking at wellness and when you're really working on that area of your life you're actually never addressing alcohol or looking at it because you just haven't put it there in there it's somewhere else it's well it's a you're right it's a category it's almost a reward category so it's Mm -hmm. some people might even consciously like yeah i take care of myself i eat well i exercise i sleep right and then on fridays i go let it loose and that's what that's what life's about work hard play hard right and yet the conversation that we have for our listeners is much more of like what do i need to be worried about as someone who drinks two glasses of wine a week Mm -hmm. what happens on my body on my brain when i'm putting alcohol in there and can we just talk about that because because we don't yeah so i think it's really important that you know we have this piece and we have somebody to you know like you said connect the dots and really inform us of exactly what's happening to our brain when you know this stuff is ingested into our bodies (laughs) 
So on today's episode, we have Dr. Steve Scanlon. Steve uh, has been a friend of mine for several years now, and we've worked in different capacities together over the course of my professional career, and I thought he would be the perfect guest today for Champagne on the Brain. And um, Dr. Scanlon owns Palm Beach Outpatient Detox in Boca Raton, Florida. He is double board certified in general psychiatry and addiction medicine, and he is a good man. We're so excited. Glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. We want to start with with you kind of just giving us your most absorbable, absorbable version of how alcohol works on the brain. Well, that's a pretty good way to put it, absorb, absorbable. I mean, that's how it starts. You know, you drink it and then it gets absorbed in your GI tract. You know, that takes uh, five to 10 minutes. You know, it's in your bloodstream. Uh, and that's when you start to feel it. It works in a lot of different ways, but it immediately, especially when you first start drinking, causes your limbic area of your brain to start releasing dopamine. You know, that leads to euphoria. Uh, and that's what you feel in the beginning. Also has an effect on two main neurotransmitters, uh, GABA, which is inhibitory, and glutamate, which is excitatory of your brain. And uh, it, a it activates kind of the GABA, which inhibits activity and it blocks glutamate, which is excitatory activity. So, you know, it makes it so you're not thinking about as much stuff and you get more relaxed and carefree. Also, as, as you drink more, it has effect on other areas. Obviously, in higher amounts, that can get dangerous. And I mean, my reaction is just that it's it's almost this this perfect recipe. You know, it's, yeah. it's you, you've, you know, you, you hear so often how well it works. You know, it, it People medicate, people use it, people depend on it. It, 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 and it's because it truly works. You know, all those things you just described are why it's quickly instant gratification. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the major cultural effects and in, in why, why it has lasted and been so acceptable in our culture for so long is, is be, because of that. Because it's so enjoyable. Yeah. It's so effective for what we're using it for. Right, and then, exactly. oh, by the way, it can be really dangerous, right? I mean, it, it's classified as a depressant, you know, and, but sometimes people want to block out yeah. some of the noise of the world or, you know, it, it can help people relax. And it's just when there's a, a line that, I can, kind of can be crossed with it where there can start to be some negative consequences. You know, they always say on TV, you know, use responsibly, you know, and that that's the big thing is what is responsible or when is it too much or becoming an issue called like a social lubricant. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, this kind of tees up, you know, the next, the, the next kind of topic we wanted to talk about in regards to, what are some of the ways that our general health is affected by alcohol use? Like even for the mild to moderate drinker, like in terms of sleep, nutrition, mental health. Yeah. Mental health. You mentioned GI tract. I'm imagining esophagus, right? Everywhere. Mm -hmm. yes. all uh, goes. Well, I mean, it, it's a neurotoxin. So that's kind of where you start. I mean, you're yeah. taking in, in a neurotoxin. I mean, there are other forms of alcohol are much more toxic, but, you know, ethyl alcohol, you know, that's what we use, but you see what's, you know, butyl alcohol, like what's in lighters or 
pro, pro, propyl alcohol, which is in our hand sanitizer, you know, methanol, um, you know, those are more toxic than what we're doing with here. But in smaller amounts, it could be the positive effects. Every time you take in alcohol as a neurotoxin, it will kill some brain cells. I mean, we have a lot of them, but over time, I guess it's a cumulative effect. You see the same thing with smoking cigarettes. I mean, uh, there's enjoyment with one of those, but, you know, it, it, it can build up. Um, you know, continue use to cause atrophy of the cortex, cerebellum. Tell us about that. Well, the cortex is like your main brain part. And it, it, atrophy means it, it kind of shrinks. But with the cerebellum, uh, that's for movement and uh, motion. And people that drink chronically, they end up having a lot of trouble with their balance uh, over time. You know, with alcohol, though, it's a, it's, they always talk about it being, it can be insidious. It, it develops slowly over time. Then that's where, again, the responsibility uh, comes. But it can also affect the hippocampus. That's where we create memory. So people that are drinking uh, moderately or or higher, uh, a lot of times will start to see some issues with memory. Um, I know most people have at least drink, had a binge drinking episode at least once in their life. And remember the next day how everything's kind of hazy and they don't work as well. It also decreases uh, REM sleep. That's the restful sleep. So, uh, you know, when you're drinking or you're not going to get a very good quality of sleep. I mean, a lot of people sometimes take it because they're having trouble falling asleep, but they're going to end up not getting as much restful sleep. Uh, There's liver damage because the liver has to get rid of uh, the alcohol, Um, you know, and then the esophagus, you know, and you can have uh, reflux and uh, gastritis. Other things can develop uh, precancerous. And then the mental health effects is kind of where I was always the most worried because you take alcohol or you, you have to ask yourself if you're drinking or if, you know, I'm thinking I, I maybe do drink too much. It's uh, are you using it to self-medicate something or are you using it to deal with anxiety for because of loneliness or isolation, kind of an issue with the pandemic. There is a lot more drinking. I guess the thing that always helped me because I stopped drinking about 17 years ago, but you know, there was always that question. You feel like you're missing out, but uh, I always look at it. Like if I drink today, it's like a credit card, Uh, you know, there could be something I want to buy and I could buy it right now with a credit card, but eventually I'm going to have to pay it back. Having just even a few drinks, every drink we have, it it takes some dopamine and serotonin uh, and we get to enjoy it right now. But that dopamine and serotonin was for the next day. You know, that was the stores that you were supposed to have for your brain. So people wake up the next day and they don't have as much dopamine and serotonin and they're more anxious and they're more irritable. And that's right. something I always said to myself. It's like, you know, I want to have all my dopamine and serotonin for the next day. Yeah. Huh. So that, that is really interesting because I, I was going to, you were making me think about the anxiety piece and, and you just spoke to it. You mentioned, you know, we drink and it works and there's, and there's, there's value to it and, and some, to some degree and, and until there's not. And, and there is some level of a threshold or, or we might even call it a fine line when I'm not sure it is a fine line in the sense to the individual because it becomes down to a risk reward mm. kind of uh, weigh in. You know, it's, it's what can you live with? And f- when, when you're in the throes of dependence and addiction, you start to, <laughs> you know, as you know, that that weigh-in becomes a little off-kiltered and, and you start to just say, well, I'll just deal with all these repercussions of, of my drinking because it works so well. You know, can you speak to that? 
Yeah, or I won't, or I won't deal with them, and I'll just drink more. Keep drinking mm-hmm. to to mask them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's something you need to think about if when you're looking back. If if I do drink too much, I mean, it is possible to quantify it. You know, the National Institute on Alcohol and Alcoholism for women, it's not more than three drinks in a day or more than seven drinks in a week. And for men, it's not more than four drinks in a day or 14 drinks uh, in a week. You know, anything above that amount is is con- starting to be considered as problem drinking or moderate drinking. And, you know, unfortunately women, I guess, don't get to have as many as men for uh, the damage, but that number, you know, it's a good, it's a good number. And then looking at how it's affecting someone the next day or what type of problems when I decided that I needed to make some type of change or even think about it. I remember someone saying to me, uh, you know, I didn't get in trouble every time I was drinking, but anytime I have been in trouble, you know, alcohol was involved. Yeah. Yeah. And, And, you know, that was something that was there for me. I wasn't thinking about the physical symptoms when I stopped drinking, but I mean, it is a good thing and you feel so much better uh, it was more on the emotional stuff and, and uh, the trouble. They often say, even if you look at the moderation management, a school of thought, you know, some people that they think they had maybe an issue with drinking or drinking too much, and they want to learn how to drink moderately again, mm-hmm. which I think is considered no more than three drinks uh, under that school of thought a day. Um, but before you even go into that, you're expected to stop drinking completely for 30 days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people can't do that, but some people can. And I think that really opens up, you know, where you're on the spectrum. What I've noticed in my practice is there are a lot of people that they've had a problem drinking for a long time and they're detoxed and sobered up and they're never going to be, if they start trying to, to drink, they're going to end up getting back into the alcoholic pattern again, and not be able to control it, you know? And then there are some people that didn't have a history of dependence that stop and actually can learn to drink more responsibly. So you really have to reflect what your patterns been and if you've been able to stop for a while and then also look why you're drinking, you know, and then if you're gonna cut down or stop drinking, there's gonna be a lot of pros. At least in my case, I noticed there weren't that many cons. There were a lot more pros than cons. Mm -hmm. Hey, Steve. You know, you often hear, um, and you just kind of touched on this, but you you often hear about people who who get to that level uh, where it is, you know, somewhat severe of an addiction, and it's it's a threshold you cross, and then you often hear, you know, you can never really go back to drinking manageably. Why is that? I don't have an exact answer for that, so I, I can just throw out maybe a hypothesis, and I, I do believe that addiction or alcohol, you know, the addiction gene, it's genetic and uh, you inherit it, it has to be activated. And I think a certain amount of use, especially with the dopamine activation for a period of time um, has to go on. But if enough of that goes, it, you know, I, I feel that the, the addiction is finally activated. And it's like a pickle can't go back to be a cucumber. So the that's why it's kind of important when someone's looking at this, like, oh, maybe I have a problem with alcohol or I need to cut down. There's people that have addiction genetics, and then there are other people who, who don't, but we're using it too much. And 
those people would be able to um, find moderation uh, with changes. That's the, the really neat part about just being willing to look at your relationship with alcohol. And, you know, for those of us who do drink that are maybe under that problematic line, what I've found is I'm, I've made the assumption, even as an addiction specialist, that that means my drinking safe because I'm not in the problematic range. And so I'm doing it perfectly. I'm doing it successfully. And you're one and of those I've, healthy drinkers. Look huh? at me go. And, yeah. and I'm not immune to all of the impact that alcohol actually does have on my body, on my brain, on maybe even relationships, all the different things that I do and participate in just because I'm below the problematic line. And from your perspective, is there such a thing as a healthy relationship to alcohol or with alcohol? Yeah, I think there can be. I mean, someone who definitely doesn't drink every day and when they drink, they don't go over a certain amount. You know, they're definitely not going to be over the legal limit to drive ever. You know, I mean, occasionally there might be uh, some binge drinking, you know, but that might be, you know, just for certain holiday, you know, or certain, certain times. Um, and also the person is not drinking to control their emotions or because of stress. Someone who has emotional sobriety, you know, which I call, they're not letting people, places, and things get to decide how they feel. And then they're using alcohol to change the way they feel, you know? Someone who's using it socially and responsibly. And I, I think those numbers are good for the Institute for, you know, for women not going over more than seven drinks a week or for men uh, over 14. That's a pretty good benchmark kind of for pretty healthy. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned some of those other factors that make it unhealthy, right? The intent, like what is my emotional intent with consuming this? Is it to turn on the GABA, turn off the glutamate? Like what right. am I really doing? And is it to be able to escape numb or medicate something, or is it to enhance the experience I'm already intent on having? Like I'm going to dinner with friends and I'm going to add alcohol to it and I can take it or leave it. It's not to be able to have dinner with friends. I have to have a glass of wine first. Are there any other kind of myths that you feel like should be addressed or things that, you know, your patients or in your experience have come to you with some misunderstandings? that are more common than others? Well, I think, I mean, I know there was a report, I don't know, it was 10 years ago where the big thing about the red wine or a little bit of alcohol, how it was almost healthy, you know, from a cardiovascular standpoint. I, you know, I don't think that helped anything too much. For sure. I saw a meme the other day that was like, if one glass of wine's good for me, can you yeah. know how good a bottle is? <laughs> you know, yeah, it's yeah, still circulating sure. that this idea that I can get the benefit. I think a lot of people come when they're talking to me and they, they say, I'm, I just think if I, I stop, like, you know, I have all the, so many friends and so much of my social and my life is about, uh, you know, drinking and a lot of things revolve around it. Or, you know, I have someone who's single and they're like, I don't know how I could even go out on a date or meet someone new. Um, without being able to drink and a lot of people don't think they would ever be able to have fun again if they're not drinking and you know th those are are truly myths I always tell people you remember when you were a kid and you know you didn't have to have alcohol 
or anything to have fun and you, you could just enjoy it. Obviously speaking someone who I haven't had a drink in, I guess, 17 years. I mean, you, you do really learn how to have fun. You know, that, that helps dispel. There's a lot of noise in someone's head. And then also some of the myths, I treat a lot of professionals, you know, that's because I'm outpatient and that's kind of who I'm towards. So a lot of people are coming and uh, they're doing well at work still. And, uh, you know, they've never been arrested. You know, they're being good to their, their family and they're still being responsible. They're, very, they're high functioning, but the alcohol, even though they're high functioning and a lot of things are going well, you know, the alcohol can have negative consequences. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so there are, there's a lot of myths. Every person has to sit with themselves and, and kind of say, what are my rationalizations, my justification, my minimizations that I do with my drinking? I think that's important to go over. Well, I love what you said before too. Not every time I drink, do I have problems, but I can tell you, at least for my journey, every time I did have a problem at one point, or every time I did have an argument or a bad night, alcohol was involved and just being willing to take a look at that. I mean, what you're talking about, just kind of being so scared of letting go of that relationship, that grief and loss around alcohol use, if you're in consideration of removing it from your diet or from your intake, you know, I found out at like age 11 or something that I was allergic to shellfish and I didn't spend the next 10 years trying to right. figure out how to incorporate it successfully in my life because I don't get this amazing chemical release from it and I don't get the impact and really being able to use that as just information of like, look, we use this because it works. We use this because it, it, it gives us a chemical release and that allows us to at least have an honest conversation about what we're doing, right? We're putting a chemical in our body that impacts the chemical releases that impacts the ways that we feel the way we can shut off our thinking and we pay the debts somewhere for that. And it's not to say that we don't still choose that risk reward sometimes, but just being willing to shine a light on it and take a look at it and go, why am I so scared to even contemplate what it would look like to remove alcohol when I know that these are the effects. I would say, you know, I also have people that come for general psychiatry. And so it's not all people that are having some huge issue with alcohol. You know, I have some people that said, ah, maybe I could cut down. And there are just so many benefits you'll see by decreasing or even taking a break for a little bit and reflecting, but just how much better uh, people feel and how much more energy and how much better quality of sleep and can get stuff done. But you know, if alcohol is playing some role, when you take it away, you have to look at like, how am I going to replace this void? And, you know, there are healthier ways to get, you know, reward, like, you know, exercise or, you know, diet and other things where you can get pleasure, but it doesn't, you know, you're not having to, to drink to change the way you feel, you know, you can be in charge of how you feel, but that, that takes work. Alcohol is, is easier and it's, uh, it is instantly gratifying. I understand, you know, that we got to replace, you know, that alcohol use with some type of healthy or more holistic, you know, lifestyle choices. Where's the in there? Like, where does the door open? Where, where do you suggest if I wanted to stop, you know, drinking or take a look at, at my drinking, where would you suggest I start? There's probably a lot of answers. And I think you guys probably have some ideas, but campaign problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obvious answer it's obviously research but what i've seen i've seen you know i was talking about the people that might be able to get back into 
a healthy relationship with alcohol again versus people that would not be able to do that. You know, I've just asked a lot of people in, in my, in the, in my treatment experience, just could you stop for 30 days and then evaluate, and, you know, you can see the benefits from that. And then, you know, and also look at what you did, but just don't drink for 30 days, you know, take that break. And a lot of people who were able to do that. And then there are a lot who cannot do that, but that's, that's a really good benchmark be honest, take a break for 30 days, establish a baseline or the data that, Oh, I can't. Yeah. And then you've at least got somewhere to go. Right. Cause we know what those folks need. We know that maybe Patrick, you needed a little bit of forced detox. Right. Mm-hmm. And there, there are places mm-hmm. on that spectrum where you're not in as deep and you're able to take a step back and you're able to say, I am going to step far enough away from this chemical to just evaluate what happens, what the pros and cons are, and whether this is something I would want to reintroduce into my life. And you actually have to have at least that 30 days, right? Similar to what you're saying, to be able to even look at those things, to be able to even get to your baseline and know. And for a lot of folks, it takes a lot more than that 30 days, but but it's a good marker for, can you? Right, and you get to see what are all the positives yeah, not, not drinking or what it, if someone's drinking under the moderate amount per week? You know, I talked about seven or under for women or 14 or under for men a week. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have this conversation in my clinical practice all the time. Not only stop drinking for 30 days, but give your give yourself the chance to add some of these other holistic yeah. you know, lifestyle choices into the mix so you can start to see some of the positive benefits that that they can provide in place of that. I love the idea and just the way that you phrased be you, you can be in control of the way that your body is, you know, releasing these chemicals rather than a substance or a chemical being responsible for it to where you don't have that credit card problem. You know, you don't owe debt on it. If I go run, I get that chemical release. I don't have to pay for it tomorrow. I've been sober 10 years. I'm still paying off my debts. (laughs) But you look at kind of the American way with things like, do you want it fixed now or do you want it fixed right? And, you know, everyone's always looking for the quick fix. And that that's kind of the answer. It's, it's something that develops over time. And you didn't get to this spot where you're having an issue with alcohol or where you're maybe thinking, you know, I want to cut down. You didn't get there in a week. So it's like this. It takes some time. You know, you may have some setbacks or this, but you know, you just don't give up and, you know, they, but they say practice, not perfection. I love that. I love that because, you know, the 30 day makes sense because it, it will consist of the battles that you might face, you know, in wanting to drink and then potentially winning that battle more times than once results in sometimes a restructuring of your priorities and a restructuring Mm -hmm. of, of what's important to you based on winning that battle, building up a little confidence, you know, the 30 day mark makes a lot of sense. Um, as opposed to, you know, anybody could make a a week. That's why I was actually interested to come on the podcast because a lot of treatment out there, it's black, it's black or white. It's like, you have to do this or that, you know, I, I, that's, there needs to be more discussions about the gray area. Absolutely. Maybe someone who's not an alcoholic, you know, or someone who's not dependent 
a lot of treatment out there is fear-based and that's not how it should be. At least my own personal got bad enough and, you know, had full dependency. When they were saying you have to give up everything forever, that was just too much to hear. So, you know, I set, I'll, you know, like I said, I'm going to get a month and see how I feel. And then I remember putting it to three months, six months. And then I was like, you know what, I want to get a year and then I'll decide, you know, at a year, I was like, this is the best I've ever felt in my life, the happiest. And I've never gotten so much done. And it's like, I'm in charge of how I feel. I mean, granted, I've never perfected not letting other people get a role in deciding how I feel. You know, that's a a constant, something I, I have to work on. It is nice to have more autonomy with uh, your feelings. You know, just even if you're someone who does take medication, this is the one thing I want to throw in for, you know, say you take an SSRI for anxiety or depression, that's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Uh, it, so it blocks the serotonin from being uh, picked up so quickly and destroyed. And so if you have more serotonin in the synapses, um, you know, it, it can help with depression or anxiety, but if you're stealing, you know, the next day's serotonin from drinking, and then it's the next morning and you're like, oh, okay, well, I took, I'm going to take my Prozac for my anxiety. But if there's not that much serotonin to block the reuptake of, then the medication is not even going to work. Learning about a lot of those things helped me want to take a break. And it started as a break and now it's become a lifestyle decision. It's so crazy. I see that so much in my practice where we talk about depression and, oh, you know, my Zoloft isn't working. My Prozac's not working. It's not treating my depression effectively. And I'm like, look, (laughs) what is happening is you are taking an antidepressant and pouring a depressant on top of it. And just that simple equation of of give and take and and what's really going on here. And, you know, it just highlighting, hey, here are two things that I see you doing here's the potential interaction and, and just being able to take a look at an honest look at that. Well, and it speaks to the normalization that, you know, this podcast is really about it's, it's the normalization of alcohol consumption in our society that puts a blinder on people to not look at that. You know, I mean, it's, it seems so obvious for us who are in this world, but to people who aren't, it's like, well, you know, I'll look at everything, but, what I've done for 20 years, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're not going to look at alcohol. Uh, absolutely not going to look at that because that's what everybody does. And that's what we will always do. But let's look at everything else. What concerns you the most about the normalization of alcohol in our society? People look to it and start to use it, you know, even young and before they learn how to deal problems on their own. And it's like the alcohol is thrown in there and that's an easier way. I, you know, I wish the relationship that alcohol plays, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated and it's mostly just advertised on TV and the, the joy and the fun. And I, I wish there was a little bit more excla- you know, explanation of it and how it acts uh, before someone gets, uh, you know, introduced to it. Often it, it reverts back to coping strategies, coping tools, coping mechanisms. When alcohol is so normalized and we, and I can speak from experience early on in my life, that's what I figured out was the easiest way to cope with things I was struggling with. Mm -hmm. And it just became part of my makeup. You know, my, my developing brain developed 
with the tool of alcohol. And so I knew no other way. And it was just inevitable that it was going to become problematic due to my unhealthy coping skills. What do you think the main drivers are of the alcohol normalization in our society? I mean, I guess advertising and media and, and sex, the pressure of life and wanting to fit in and, and just with everything going so social media now, it's just, there's, I feel like there's even more pressures. There'll probably be more and more issues with uh, alcohol. It's not going anywhere. And I just think it's really, there's a lot of pressure on people that leads to a lot of alcohol use. I'm going to share a quick story and, and PC or not, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, the very first time I ever hooked up with a girl was in junior high and I was absolutely drunk and I never, ever, ever, ever kissed another girl unless I was drinking up until the day I quit drinking. I was 29 when I quit drinking. So I started drinking at 13. So, you know, what's that? Nine plus uh, a lot of years, years. a lot of years, and shouldn't have drank so much, you know. And and oh oh, man, you a lot of sex, you know. No, I'm kidding. But uh, every time that there was an intimate, you know, experience, it was under the influence. And then when I got sober at 29, I mean, can you imagine what I was like? I mean, oh my god, I haven't had sex since. That's not true. Trying to learn that at 29 and just not having that facilitator. Yeah. Not having your buddy there with you to say, come on, man. Oh my God. You got this. Scary. What a weird dude. (laughs) (laughs) I like that you're doing this podcast though. Cause like even those last two questions and talking about normalization, like it's something that I haven't really thought about that much or heard other people talk about. That's why I was having difficulty even giving a good answer, you know, and that's why I'm glad, you know, you're talking about something like this. And it's also in a way, because that's the, I guess, the last point I would say is, you know, you're never alone when you're trying, there's been lots of people trying to do this and have been successful and you don't want to do it alone. And like with this podcast, though, it's something people can listen to and uh, they can learn and, you know, it's private. And I, I like that it's open to a, a larger uh, audience because, you know, talking about normalization and, and it's not so black and white, not fear-based. So, you know, I, I like this a lot and I'll, I'll be interested to listen to uh, the other episodes. So thank you guys. Like my thoughts are completely swirling after all that because I know all of us love to talk about addiction in the most severe, horrific ways that alcohol can impact us. And purely because that's predictable to us as addictions professionals and being in that field, we know what to do with that. And we know what to tell people to do. Mm -hmm. And this conversation is so freaking cool because we're just talking about questions. I don't know how I just now realized this, but like the severity of the problem, you know, varies and it falls on a spectrum. But when I think about it, like all the stuff that we're going to tell a problematic, you know, severe alcoholic to do post medical detox, Mm -hmm. 
is the same stuff we're going to suggest yeah you know anybody to do if they want to look at their drinking yeah pick up a mirror take a look <laughs> what you got going on it's so cool to be able to to just ask yourself questions about your relationship with alcohol and not do it from a place of like I'm not considering getting sober. I'm not necessarily looking for this lifelong journey. I'm not hitting up an AE meeting necessarily. I'm just actually taking an honest look at it for the first time, maybe ever. And for me, that started because of something that Steve said. It was not the fact that every time I drank, it was problematic. It was the fact that every problem that I had present in my life, alcohol was involved in each one of those scenarios. And when I really started to question some of that, this is the way it sounded for me. It could sound really different for you. It was simply, is my continued consumption of alcohol compatible with the things that I want in my life? I I wanted my boyfriend at the time to continue to be in my life. I wanted to finish my degree early. I wanted to travel abroad. I wanted to continue yoga, running on the beach, doing all these healthy things. And to be totally honest, alcohol got in the way of every single one of those. It's just that I had to have some kind of realization or or some kind of honesty with myself to be able to look at those things. So is it compatible with the wellness that I'm trying to achieve? Nope. Is it compatible with not having hypothetical arguments on the side of King Street in Charleston, South Carolina? No. <laughs> you know, like with yourself. With a tree, actually. It was a tree. It was a pretty tree. It was a tree that got assaulted, I think, by the end of the night. But really looking at does this make sense if these are the things that I'm trying to grow and this is the life that I'm trying to build? And at the time, the answer was no. Alcohol was not compatible with reaching those things for me. And so it just made sense not to reduce it because it wasn't compatible, but to remove it. And I had to go in with the mindset of it was temporary or, or it was just for today, just for a month, whatever I had to do. But I just kept having to remind myself of those bigger goals and the fact that alcohol didn't fit with them. And it wasn't until much later that I revisited the idea of, is it now compatible? And why am I even contemplating that again? And really doing some of the inner work on, why do I care? Why am I revisiting it? And what would that look like if I did? And so after two years of not drinking and having the experiences of saying, oh, no, I don't drink, you know, and, and having those social experiences, learning how to have fun, making sure that I wasn't turning to it kind of for emotional reasons, there was a time period where then I said, okay, if I'm ever going to drink again, it's not going to be outside of that problematic threshold. It's not going to be to a point where I could ever experience what I've experienced before with alcohol. And so now for the past seven years, there has never been a point where I've had more than two drinks on one occasion. So how do you do that? I think with a lot of self-reflection, a lot of evaluation, and I don't do it perfectly, let me say that. There are definitely autopilot days where I'm like, did I just have a glass of wine? Why did I have a glass of wine? Because it's sitting there. Do you set intentions like prior to drinking? Like, are you like, do you go into it like, all right, I'm going to have two drinks tonight and I'm going to lock everything else in my trunk. I don't, I don't have to. I think that's the thing. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's the thing is I don't have to. If I had to lock something up, 
I likely could not be someone who drank successfully, right? Like, right. Uh, let's be honest. If that's what you had if to, I do had, to do it, yeah. it wouldn't work. If I had to put that much effort into my relationship with alcohol, it's I can assume win. it's unhealthy. It's going to win. Yeah. I don't. I, you know, I, I make a decision. I'm very mindful about food and alcohol. What does my body want? Not, not alcohol. What do I want? Am I going to enjoy it? What is this going to mean? Am I going to savor it? You know, do I actually, one of the biggest things to be totally honest with you was, do I want to be doing the thing that I'm doing or is it only fun because alcohol is involved? Tailgating Mm. is so dumb. Sorry. (laughs) Y'all love sports. I know. Tailgating. Tailgating Tailgating is so dumb. Pay me enough to go to a tailgate. But if you apply alcohol, so fun. Well, that's the only thing it's about, really. I mean, so I stopped doing stuff like that. Try to say it's other things, but it's not. I stopped doing stuff like that. If I don't want to go and it would only be fun with alcohol, then the answer is I don't want to go. It's really being willing to evaluate all those different things. And for me, just becoming more of my own person, it was like, stop with the autopilot. Like, you're your own person. Yeah. If you don't enjoy it, don't go. Don't do it because everyone else does it. Like, not in a rebellious, like, I don't want to be mainstream. But, like, but that's it. That's I the don't pressure enjoy it. That, that we all feel. Yeah. We all feel that pressure. That, like, foundation of mindfulness that could potentially be created by looking at your alcohol use yeah. has so many positive impacts in other areas of our it's lives. Amazing. Totally. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit samsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969. Or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.